all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Good morning to everybody. We'll be taking your calls during this hour concerning any kind of health care issue, whether it's your own or if it's somebody else's in your family or friends. We would love to hear from you this morning. You can reach us by calling 1-877-MPB-RING. That's one 877 672 Or if you're not able to call, just send us an email. We'd love to hear from you that way also. You can send those to remedy at mpbonline.org. Well, the winter is here. We certainly are waking up to a little bit of frost here and there in Mississippi and uh, uh, certainly in probably in the northern parts, a little bit more of it. But it's always nice during this time of year to enjoy the sunshine when we have it during the day and things warm up very quickly here in the south. I would encourage all of you, I know a lot of us are Really buckling down as we should be. Uh, numbers are climbing. Um, hospitals across the state, including our own here in the Jackson metropolitan area, are really starting to feel uh, an increased crisis of beds. I know we're uh, at the University of Mississippi Medical Center are having routinely day by day people who are waiting in our ER for both a regular bed and certainly for ICU beds. Um, there are simple things that we can do to slow that down. Uh, what we don't want is an, uh, any kind of situation where uh, care is delayed because we don't have the physical resources to put people. So I know there's a lot of misinformation out there. I get it from different people. They'll say, well, I, I didn't think that was real, that there are, uh, all the beds are, are full at all the hospitals. I thought that was just sort of fake news. Uh, but I can, uh, you know, accurately say that that is not the case across uh, our state. There are lots of hospitals, just about every hospital that's feeling the crunch, and some of them don't have any beds that are available. So we don't want to have to delay that care. So I'd encourage all of you to uh, do the things that we know work. That's wearing a mask, uh, staying away from uh, large groups of people. Um, and making sure that you, uh, you know, indoors, especially, it's very important to do that. Certainly, I'm doing that uh, both at work, not just when I'm seeing patients, but day to day. And uh, it's an inconvenience, but it's one that can save uh, lives. Whether or not you are at higher risk or not, certainly preventing that spread of, of the virus to other people is very important. I also want to encourage you during the hour, we have uh, Great support from our listeners and certainly lots of you that uh, that are able to call in. But we do find that we have a little bit of a crunch at the latter uh, portion of the hour. And and we I, I certainly hate to uh, have to cut people off and uh, 
and not be able to hear what they have to say or uh, have time to answer their questions fully. So I'd encourage you to go ahead and call right now if you have a question about anything. It could be a new medication that your physician has put you on. It can be a new symptom or diagnosis. Or if it's just a general healthcare question about anything, you can give us a call this morning at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four or send an email to us. If you miss part of the program, you can also go to our website, mpbonline.org, and just search for Southern Remedy. You'll see a list of archived programs from the past. So if you came in on the uh, on the back end of a discussion about something and wanted to hear uh, what was said, or if you had to uh, get back to, to doing what you do at work, uh, you certainly can uh, can go to the archive and, and check out that uh, past program. And those are available at any time. I hope everybody does um, get out, though. One of the things that I've been telling my patients on a day-to-day basis is that it is important to get exercise and to get outside. I'm a big proponent of doing that. You certainly feel a lot better. This is the time of year where we have uh, certainly more depression, anxiety with the holidays. This holiday season between Thanksgiving and Christmas, um, for a number of reasons, carries an increased risk of those things. And uh, getting outside and getting some activity, and if you can do it as a family, too, in your uh, in your household, that's going to be real important. I know a lot of kids are either out of school or they're soon to be out of school. Plan some activities. They don't have to be uh, that uh, complex. Uh, certainly one of the best things about Mississippi that I love is that you can get out uh, and we have plenty of places to spread out where you can enjoy things. Um, you know, certainly uh, uh, cross country or interstate travel is probably not the best thing right now, but there are plenty of opportunities to do that and enjoy uh, enjoy things. I'm sitting here looking out my window right now thinking it would be nice to be outside, but uh, I am happy to be here uh, taking your calls or questions. It's also important as um, as we uh, think about uh, sort of what you have, uh, you know, what you deal with on a day-to-day basis. A lot of physicians' offices continue to offer telemedicine. I did three telemedicine visits on uh, Tuesday morning uh, for my patients that uh, couldn't travel or were at an increased risk of travel uh, to the office a little bit higher risk, and a lot of the, the main issues that you can uh, deal with in the office now, we can do that uh, over, over either audio or audiovisual. All right, we're going to go to our first caller. I think we've got uh, Tim from uh, Louisiana. Good morning, Tim. Good morning. Thanks for I calling. One, well, thank you. Thank you for being there. This is a great program, a great station. I just wish Louisiana was as good as y'all. Oh, well, thank you. You know, there's always a lot of good, uh, healthy competition between our two states. I love Louisiana. I actually was was born in uh, West Monroe in uh, Washita Parish. So, uh, so technically, I was I'm a native to there. But then, uh, after I was about three or four, moved back to Mississippi. Well, I, you know, I consider living in Mississippi, but that Confederate flag put me off. Well, we got a new one. We got a new one now. But anyhow, I'm settled down over here. Um, I've got pain in my calves. I'm 68 years old. And when I kneel down and get back up, I find that I often have to help my legs by using my arms. And my calves are in pain afterwards. Now, I had two stents installed. What do you call it? Um. 
that came up through the aortic stents, and I'm wondering uh-huh. if they might have had an issue. Yeah, so, so you probably, what you're describing is peripheral vascular disease, which is a narrowing of the arteries that go to your legs, and they can be uh-huh. at different levels. So um, the stents help keep those open. And, uh, Tim, they probably put you on other medications, too, like a cholesterol medication. I'm, I'm just guessing at that, but um, to try to keep those open. Um, uh-huh. You can... You can have some increased pain even after you've had that procedure done, and and mobility sometimes worsens that. And you do have to be a little bit careful about you know uh, getting down and getting back up. Uh, uh-huh. But there's a couple there's a couple of things that you know pain in your calves is very common, but that's a common symptom of not having enough blood flow to them. Also, particularly if you're moving around a lot, people will say, "Well, I just get these cramps." in my calves when I'm walking or if I'm going upstairs or those kinds of things. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So it, it may be related to the, you know, to the blood flow going through the arteries. Um, but it is important, you know, to continue to, to use them, uh, cause your muscles, if you don't use them and just sort of lay off of them, uh, yeah, you know, having, I got you. yeah, it's, it's, and you have to, you know, pushing yourself back up and those kinds of things. I, you know, it wouldn't be such a bad idea to utilize physical therapy, at least for with one or two sessions to just to show you some common exercises that you can do um, that can help your mobility getting up and down. I suspect oh. that you're probably going to continue to have a little bit of pain there, but they need to be even after you've had the stents, they don't last forever. And you can have uh, you can have some some closure of those arteries sometimes over time uh-huh. so you, that may need to be looked at they well, and it, actually just have because an appointment on the 16th to have it checked out so oh that's perfect yeah and that and for for our le- the rest of our audience you know one of the things that they do is they'll do an ultrasound where they look at the blood flow to the lower extremities a lot of times they yeah, call those dopplers that's, what, that's exactly what she did yep yep so that's good I, but that's one thing you know it's a misconception sometimes i'll say well I've had the stents. There's nothing else to do, but they can actually re-stent things, and you can get a lot of improvement in your mobility, and the the cramping that you mentioned may go down over time too. All right. All right, Tim. Well, thank you. Thanks for everything y'all do in Mississippi. Oh, thank you, Tim, and thanks for listening, and uh, certainly thank you for calling. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
Welcome back to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics. Uh, lots of good uh, questions, or at least one good question right now, and a lot of people on the line are calling in. If you have a question for us, it could be about anything. Maybe it's a new medication, maybe it's a potential side effect, or maybe it's something in the news that you just want some more information about. We'll do our best to answer those questions or point you in the right direction this morning. The number to call is one eight seven seven. MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Let's go to Jackie from Madison. Good morning, Jackie. Are you there, Jackie? Just a second. We're trying to connect with you. Hold on, just a minute. Uh, I put her back on hold. We'll see if we can't get back on the air. Okay. Uh, so, Jackie, we'll, we'll work on that, um, and uh, I think we're waiting on uh, one other person right now. Uh, I mentioned earlier, you know, contacting your physician and not putting things off. We've, we've started to see a little bit of a delay in different things in normal screening tests that we get, for instance, like mammograms, colonoscopies. Um, it's fairly safe to get those, so you want to go ahead and contact your physician about those kinds of tests. One of the worst things that we can run into is a situation where we don't have, uh, you know, we miss something. And a lot of times those tests, they really, the earlier you can catch things, particularly cancers, the, the easier it is to treat those. So um, so we're, we're doing our best to do that. So contact your physician about those kinds of things. You know, we're getting to the point now where we're almost a year out from some of those normal visits. So if you've been delaying that, I'd, I'd encourage you to go ahead and contact your physician. All right, we're going to go back and try to connect with Jackie from Madison. Are you there, Jackie? I am. Hello? All right. All right. Thank you for calling. I, thank you. Uh, I have a question about the COVID vaccine. I had always thought if you had a um, measles or mumps or whatever, you built up antibodies and, and you did not need the vaccine if you survived the actual disease. With COVID, I hear that when people have it, they have the antibodies for a short time, but they can get COVID again. And there being, I heard one person say that, yes, uh, those who have had COVID need to get the vaccine also. Why is this different from other diseases? And why, why are people who have had it getting told to get the vaccine? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So every, so the way that your body fights off infections, particularly after it's exposed to some of them, it is different from uh, condition to condition. So for instance, chicken box. If you get chicken pox, uh, like myself as a kid, uh, you do have antibodies to that. Now, over time, that can wane. And actually, it changed how we immunized against chicken pox early on. So now we give sort of a booster for that. And then chicken pox, if you got it, uh, as you get older, you can have uh, shingles. So right. that's basically the same virus causes that that causes chicken pox. So that's why we now have a shingles vaccine. So that's one instance where immunizing, even though you've had it, helps to continue to have that immunity. It's almost like a booster. Another uh, example of where you have incomplete immunity to something uh, is tetanus. So certainly tetanus, if you get tetanus and survive, that's really, really rare. And you don't build up enough antibodies to that to really mount up an immune response to it. So that's why a tetanus shot is very important to get about every 10 years. Um, the same thing, uh, whooping cough is another one where you have incomplete immunity so that if you are, uh, you know, exposed to that bacteria, 
um, that can go away, that can sort of wane with time. And that's also one of the reasons why we re-immunize for that. And then there's those funny viruses that, uh, like the flu, that can change over time or you don't develop a, an immune response even within the same season. And because coronavirus is well known to, uh, to cause, uh, you can have waning immunity with it, that's one of the reasons why it is recommended to get vaccinated, even if you've had coronavirus. So best we can tell, and again, this is, you know, people get, uh, are very frustrated, I think, sometimes as information changes. And what you have to understand is we're learning about this every day. I mean, it's hard to keep up with the, the literature and everything. And um, you don't want to jump the gun on what is effective and what's not effective. And you also have to be patient when things aren't, you know, the more we test things, the more we have people that have it, the more we learn about it. That's one of the, the great reasons why our mortality with, with COVID has gone down, because we've learned about how do we support people who have it uh, and what are the things to do, not necessarily to treat the virus, because there's not much that can help there, but how do we support people um, as and when they have complications. But back to the immunizations, that's the reason why it is recommended that you get a vaccination, even if you've had COVID, because that immunity goes away with time. So There's lots of molecular. Oh, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, so we don't know how long the vaccine will be effective in protecting us. Is that correct? That That's correct. What we, because I mean, the best that we have right now is knowing that it's effective for about three to five months afterwards. Ooh. So we don't know if this is going to look something like the flu vaccine where we'll have, you know, an opportunity to do this seasonally. We do know that um, coronaviruses uh, in general, they tend to have a seasonal variance that, that is a, overlays flu. So we, we saw them with causing the, you know, the, the same kind of um, symptoms that flu does in the same time period. Or it may be longer acting. Hopefully it will be. Uh, and sometimes different, and vaccines are really designed to do that, to really do better and to maximize the body's immune response so that they last a lot longer. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the reason, particularly with coronavirus. And you can't, I mean, you have to understand everything's sort of different. You can't really extrapolate, okay, well, if, you know, like measles, yeah, you get vaccinated once, that's probably going to be a lifetime immunity unless your immune response for whatever, you know, your immune system wanes uh, for whatever reason, whether that's chemotherapy or those kinds of things. But um there's certainly instances where we do revaccinate, even for those, like with a bone marrow transplant, is a good uh, is a good example where we'll we'll immunize, re-immunize somebody because basically their immune system is wiped out and its memory of what uh, it was built up for with antibodies is wiped out. Okay, well I appreciate it. I was just trying to get more information. I'm in the older 74 age group so i don't know when we'll get it but more than likely we'll have to get another vaccination um several months later maybe well we yeah we don't know we'll just have to sort of see how that plays out um and this is a two vaccine series you know the, right. the pfizer one um so it's uh it's about 21 days after getting the initial one but uh, it, good news is we've got it. You know, we've yeah. got some uh, something in our arsenal. And here in Mississippi, as early as next week, probably we'll have that. Will we be signing up for that, or how will we get on the list to get it? 
So the Mississippi State Department of Health is partnering with hospitals and clinics in the state to distribute this and to offer it. It is not mandated, but it will be optional, and high-risk groups will be offered it first. So what, and it's a state to state. It's sort of different. So probably the what we're what we're hearing at least is that it's going to be individuals who are age fifty and older. The the top group is going to be. Uh, and long-term care individuals who are in nursing homes or, or long-term care facilities, uh, patients who are at the most risk for it, and then those who care for those patients and our frontline medical workers. So, Jackie, yeah, so it, it looks like the highest uh, risk individuals are going to be the ones that get the vaccine first, but we don't have all the details yet, but the Mississippi State Department of Health is coordinating with different places. All right. Thank you for calling, Jackie. We're going to go to uh, Terry from Batesville. Good morning, Terry. Good morning. Uh, I listen to Thanks. your show just about every time it's on there. Good to hear oh, from you. Oh, thank me. you, Terry. Okay. What's what's your question this morning? My question is, what what is your opinion about LASIK surgery? Uh, for uh, So LASIK surgery for, for your eyesight? Um, uh, it's yes, one of those... It's been one of those things that uh, a lot of people, you know, it's one of those optional surgeries. So most of the time, you know, uh, you can, sure, you can, like myself, you can wear glasses and it can be fine. But if you want to either lessen the amount that you have to, you know, uh, lessen the, the, the glass, gla- the glasses that you wear, the prescription strength of it, or if you, maybe you can do without them completely, it is an option for a lot of people. It's very precise um, it has does have some complications in some people. So some people, the most common one that I'm familiar with is dry eyes. And for some people that already have that, the ophthalmologist may say, well, you're not really a candidate for this because of that. But they're, they've gotten so good with this. And, and it really depends upon uh, the computer system. I mean, a lot of it is determined by, you know, a computer sort of uh, analyzing what they need to do. And it sounds horrendous because they basically, what they do is they sort of shave off the outer portion of your cornea to, uh, to, uh, uh, allow it to focus a lot better. And it's not necessarily for everybody, depending on what their age is and what their refractive problem is. Uh, but your ophthalmologist can tell you, you know, yeah, you would be a good candidate versus not. So if it's, they're offering it to you, you don't have to have it. You could certainly wear glasses to see, but if it, in some cases it can certainly help that so that you only have to maybe have them while you're reading or, um, you know, you may be able to do without them completely. The other thing you have to keep in mind is if, if you're over the age of about 45 to 50, most of the time you're going to have to, even if you've had LASIK, you're probably still going to have to wear glasses to read uh, just because your lens is not, um, it's sort of fixed at that point. It's not able to to uh, to bend to to focus the light so although things will look clear things up close that you need a little bit further magnification your eyes not going to be able to move your lens to to uh, focus that light so you may still have to have reading glasses even if you have LASIK but those are all questions I would definitely ask your ophthalmologist about that number one do you qualify number two what are the complications and number three, do you think I'd have to have reading glasses after this just to read like normal stuff? All right, Terry, thanks for calling. We appreciate that. We're going to go to Don in Collins, Mississippi. Good morning, Don. 
Hey, how you doing, Doctor? Glad to hear from you. Good. Thanks for calling. I was recently doing a little work and lost mobility of my right, just my right hand. I couldn't hold anything or pick anything up, and then it lasted for about 10 minutes, and then it went away. Do you have any idea what might have caused that? Yeah, a lot of different things. So usually that's um, a nerve-type problem, and it can be anything. You know, the nerves that control motion, particularly in your hands, anything that is is between your your hand and your brain, it could be an, uh, any number of places between those. Now, oh. certainly the one that everybody thinks about, particularly with loss of, of function, even if it's temporary, is a stroke. And basically that's in the brain itself where you have a decreased blood supply in an area of the brain that does something. In our right. hands, the area of the brain that controls movement of the hand is fairly large. Um, just because of the fine motor um, uh, movements that we have and the sensation. So um, that's one thing, you know, we always think about, we, we call it a differential diagnosis where we're, it's a list of different things that could be causing something. And you always right. want to check off the one that's the most serious or going to cause the most problems or the thing that you can correct first. So it could also be something that happened to the nerve going to the hand anywhere from the spinal cord down. So it could be along the arm. Sometimes there's a nerve entrapment. Usually that's accompanied by pain though. So if you didn't have any no, neck pain or no shoulder pain, pain and had no. uh, loss of function of the arm, I wouldn't think it would be anything like a peripheral nerve. So well, I I, even a... if it was isolated, it's unusual no. to have a stroke or a TIA. Some people call that a mini stroke. If it's just loss of function, but, mm -hmm. um, and, and I didn't even ask this, is this your hand that you write with? Is this your dominant hand? Correct. Yeah. Yes, so particularly, particularly in that sense, even if it was for a couple of minutes or a couple of hours, I'd get that checked out. There's some ways that they can do that and look at the blood flow to that area of the brain. And just to see if there's something that they can do. Uh, there's a yeah. lot more. You don't have to wait for your big stroke anymore. There's a lot of ways to uh, to 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 diagnostically find out what's going on and to treat it. And the other thing is, time is really of the essence. So particularly if it comes back, you don't want to wait around. The next time that it happens, it might be something that ends up being permanent. And particularly with being your dominant hand, you want to uh, to make sure that you get that looked at. So I would I would tell you, doctor, about that. They they're probably going to want to do something like a CT of the head or even an MRI of the head to make sure that everything well, looks okay. Actually, actually, I've already had that because I've just went through some kind of fainting spells like, and they put uh -huh. me on a arrhythmia pill and a Pradaxa. And they did yeah, all so kinds blood, of, you know, blood work looking at my throat, uh, neck and head and all that. So all that checked out okay? Yeah, apparently. I mean, they didn't say it was nothing wrong with it. Yeah, that's good. I mean, you do it exactly what you should, and, and they've got you on medications, it sounds like, to help prevent that from happening again. So hopefully, right. and even if they didn't find anything, it still doesn't mean during that one period of time you had a problem. Now, there's all kinds of other rare things, too. Sometimes you can have complex migraines or even uh, atypical seizures that can do the same kind of thing, but it sounds like you get the workup that you need to try to figure that out. Yep. All right. Well, I was I would just had that on my mind and listen to you all the time, and I appreciate your comments. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir, and thank you for calling.
I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think "Eh, maybe i'll try it myself some jobs just aren't that difficult and yes you can do it if you want to find out how to do those things listen to fix it 101 podcast everywhere this is an mpb think radio podcast This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you, answering your questions or comments about any kind of healthcare issue that you are dealing with today. Uh, We're going to go to our next caller. That's Renee in Utica. Good morning, Renee. Good morning. Uh, I saw a blood pressure kit that had the uh, cuff and monitor sitting on the top of the arm, and I would like to know if you're familiar with those. Uh, Is it adequate as as well as the breast? Blood, uh, the um, wrist uh, blood pressure machine as well. Yeah, so it's uh, you touched on a couple of things. You know, blood pressure, it's very um, dependent on how accurately you, you check it. So you can have a cuff that's not the, the correct size for your arm, it could be in the wrong position. So you got to be careful with those kinds of things. And there's a lot of ones that are in development, but they're not substantiated. They're not uh, as accurate as others. So um, I'm not exactly sure the one you're describing, but basically the most accurate ones are the ones that fit over the upper part of your arm. And again, it has to be the correct size. So if your arm's larger than that cuff size, and usually it'll have on that package or have on the cuff, It'll have the the maximum and minimum size of that. If you have a cuff that's too small for your arm size, the pressures that it's going to read are going to be artificially higher. And if the the cuff is too large for your arm size, the pressures that it's going to read are going to be artificially lower than what it actually is. Um, Wrist monitors really don't work very well. They're they're inconsistent. And the thing you have to, to keep in mind is, Wherever that cuff is on the arm, the reason why we, you know, you may go to the doctor's office and for, for some reason, you know, there are some reasons why we would check them in different areas. But basically that cuff has to be at the same level as your heart. So if you're using a wrist monitor and you have the arm lower than your heart, the actual, what it's going to read is a, is a reading that's higher than what it actually is. So it's it's very sensitive on that. So I don't recommend wrist monitors i find them to be uh, a lot more variable you have widely fluctuating blood pressures there for most people they don't work too well uh, there'll be some instructions on those those ones that fit over your upper arm um, i if you can get a monitor that does an average of two or three blood pressures at a time that's important and then the other thing is it you can you can be off by about 20 percent on a blood pressure reading uh, if, you, if you're if you not taking it correctly, if you're not seated with your back supported, feet flat on the floor, you don't need to smoke 30 minutes beforehand. If you smoke, you don't need to eat. You certainly don't need to be talking. 
And, you know, I, I realize a lot of physicians offices don't do that. And that's one of the problems. And that's why we always, if I see a high blood pressure reading, I'll, um, you know, I'll, I'll say, hey, let's repeat that. Let's make sure that the patient's not talking and those kinds of things. Um, but there are very good ones that you can buy at a lot of the, the uh, brand name pharmacy ones. Um, one brand that's been around for a long time, I don't have any stock in this company or anything. It, it's called Omron, O-M-R-O-N. And there are some subsidiaries of that with a lot of those pharmacies um, that, uh, that they're perfectly fine. Those are the same ones that we use in our office. And they do have the capability of, of taking uh, multiple blood pressures and averaging those together so that you get sort of a true mean blood pressure. But that's the ones you want to use. That does bring up, you know, it's not like diabetes. Diabetes, we can get a lab test, an A1C or a finger stick glucose, and you know what that blood sugar is. Um, it's fairly accurate. Uh, blood pressures, they can vary from time to time. Your blood pressure goes up and down about 20% during the day and night. Uh, normally, it can be elevated during pain or other things. So it's you got to keep those things in mind and know what the true blood pressure is and, and uh, sort of get an idea of how often during the day that it's elevated too. We call that the, the burden of, of disease with blood pressure. So great, great things to bring up, uh, Renee, and I would keep that in mind. But I would go for um, for the, the one that, that fits over your upper arm, over those wrist monitors, or something else. If it's just laying over your arm, you actually have to have a pressure that, that inflates around the arm. It, it needs to inflate all the way around it and have the right size cuff. So thanks for that question. How long should you wait after you have eaten to take your blood pressure? You know, 30 minutes would be fine. Um, that's, that's what's recommended if you go by the book. Um, so that's, and I realize that's, that's one that's probably not as variable, but you do shunt for some people, you, you, your blood pressure changes when you eat because you have to, uh, shift the amount of blood that's going to your gut to help digest that food. All right. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Thanks for calling. All right. I think we're going to go to Jerry and I'm not sure where Jerry is from. Jerry, are you there? Yes. Calling from, thanks uh, for calling. I was mute. I'm calling from Newton. I was calling from Newton, but now I'm in Truckee. I'm on the road. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions, and then all right. I'll get your answer go. on the radio because I've got road noise and all. Uh, sure, go ahead. Go ahead, Jerry. Okay, thank you. As far as macular degeneration, has there been any recent uh, new treatments for it other than the prescribed vitamins? And uh, with uh, floaters in the eye, I I've heard that. There's a treatment for that where they take the fluid out of the eye and filter it and put it back in. And uh, I'm just wondering about those two things. I'm on the way to my ophthalmologist, but I'm going to let her be the second opinion, let you be the first opinion. <laughs> and, you need her to be the first opinion and me to be the second. So, uh, uh, yeah, Jerry, so, I, so, 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 you know, I'm not an ophthalmologist, but I do know a little bit about, about these two. So macular degeneration, there are two types. There's a wet and a dry. There's different treatments with both. Now, they, there are injections that they can actually do into the eye itself that can help with that to, to slow the progression of it. Um, so that, and there are some medications that have actually done a lot better with that. So I would, I would go to somebody, you know, if, if your ophthalmologist treats people with macular degeneration, um, frequently, I think that's, that they certainly would know those. They're very common. 
Uh, again, it doesn't sound pleasant, but it's certainly something that, that, that does work. As far as the floaters, floaters are just sort of debris that's in the, the interior part of the eye, the vitreous. Um, it's fairly common in a lot of people. Now, with macular degeneration and other eye problems, sometimes they can be more common. So uh, I have not heard specifically about taking out the vitreous and, um, and uh, you know, filtering it and putting it back in. I know that sometimes you take out the vitreous um, that, uh, that's interior, uh, the part of the eye, but that's, that's fairly complex and can have a lot of complications. So, again, I would lean on your ophthalmologist for that. Uh, and I think we, uh, Jerry, I think he's on the road and, and we dropped there, but that was, that would be what I would recommend for both of those. And, and you need to ask your ophthalmologist with anything like any other physician, Hey, you know, what's your experience with this? Do you treat people with this? Is there a specialist that you can send me to? Always a good idea to get a second opinion, particularly if it's something you're not comfortable with just to get one more evaluation. But again, I'm not an ophthalmologist. I send people to the ophthalmologist for things like this. So I would lean on their expertise in this area. All right, I think we're going to, I think it was Lolita, is that right? All right, thank you, thanks for that, there's a thumbs up. Good morning, Lolita. Good morning, how are you? Good, thanks for calling. Thanks for taking my call. Mine is similar to the gentleman who called earlier with loss of function in the hand, and it just lasts for, um, could be from five to 20 minutes, but mine has, tingling in the hand up and down the arm but particularly in the in the fingers and the digits and I've had scans and things done and nothing has been found um, and so one uh, healthcare professional was saying that it could be just tension in my shoulders and and it's affecting the nerves so what what is your take on that yeah, in your case, and some of the um, some of the uh, you know symptoms that you're describing, it does sound like maybe a nerve entrapment. So there are three nerves that control particularly the sensation, but also the motor function in the hand. So those nerves come out of the spinal cord, they go down the arm, they branch in different directions. But there's three: the radial nerve, the ulnar nerve, uh, and the median nerve. And they control different different parts of the hand. So it may be that that one of those nerves is getting entrapped anywhere from your uh, where it comes out of the spinal cord all the way down to the arm. And it's a little bit if it's part of your hand that you're experiencing that versus the whole hand. They sometimes can tease out where what level that is. But there's a lot of different places with it, and particularly if it's certain things that you're doing, like certain if you're laying your arm in a certain way a lot of times truck drivers will have this because they're they're propping their arm up in a certain way and it's pressing on one of those nerves and it can cause both uh, pain it can cause the tingling or loss of sensation and it can also cause some weakness so uh, again you have to sort of tease out where this is happening it's not you know it's certainly it, it would be possible that that there's some tension that's causing that but usually it's where it's going through a narrow cavity. For instance, uh, you know, carpal tunnel sy sy syndrome is a very common one that happens in the wrist itself through the carpal tunnel with the median nerve. Um, but it may be further up and there's the, the nerves go over some bony structures, too. So if you're having inflammation or bone spurs that are sort of pressing on them, 
then uh, then that may be something that's going on. I, d- did you see a, a neurologist for this or just your, your regular doctor? Uh, I saw both. I saw okay. both. This okay. was a couple of years ago. Yeah. This has been off and on for a few years. And it's it's like similar to what you're saying. It's like if I, you know how people say, well, I slept wrong last night and, and that tingling feeling. Um, and I've been buying different pillows. You know, they were suggesting different pillows. And so um, that's where I am right now. And But it's just getting to be annoying because it takes about, about 20 minutes or so for, for me to feel comfortable using my hand. And it, I notice that it's worse when it's cold. Yeah. And that, to me, that you're describing things that is probably a nerve entrapment or a nerve uh, that's getting pressed on by other structures. And that fits particularly with a lot of the movements that you have at night. So it may be even higher up, you know, in your in your shoulder or neck. And one thing that I want to make sure that, that they they probably already did this, but it's a good idea to look at the neck just because a lot of times you can have, you know, bony growths as we get older that sort of press on the peripheral nerves that come out of, of that high. You wouldn't necessarily yeah. think about doing that, you know, just from something down in the hand, but you need to think about all along the way. This doesn't, to me, at least by what you're, you know, describing doesn't feel like, doesn't sound like something like a stroke or a mini stroke, but it does sound like there's sort of nerve entrapment. And sometimes if you do have a lot of tension, uh, you know, a, a mild muscle relaxer, particularly at night, can help out uh, a lot of times. But um, it, it can be chronic in nature, so you can have this off and on. Uh, there are a couple of instances where a nerve release, where you're actually freeing up the nerve as it travels in a tight space, uh, sort of like what they do for carpal tunnel, but along the other, uh, you know, uh, other places in your arm. That might help out if it is a problem with something in your neck that becomes, you know, evident over time, then they might can, uh, you know, sort of shave that off or uh, the bony structure that's pressing on it. Um, but I would continue to, to let them know about it because sometimes even if the workup has been negative right now, um, as it as it goes along, there may be some things that become evident. So don't give up on it. Uh, certainly start, you know, keep keep letting them know what's going on with your symptoms. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Well, thank you so much for your time, and thanks for taking my call. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for calling. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. We are a Yucca Drive-In Theater. We're the last operating drive-in in the state of Mississippi. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. Freak me out that you could come and drive your car and park and watch the movie outside. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app, Mile Marker, a Mississippi Roads podcast. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
This is Dr. Jimmy on Southern Remedy at MPB Think Radio, taking your calls and questions about healthcare issues that are near and dear to you. Got some great calls as usual for the hour and a few more minutes to talk about some things. Actually, this is one question that comes up um, every once in, a, once in a while with my patients. And certainly it was uh, along the same general question pre-COVID, but now with COVID, there's a lot of the healthcare system in general is a very complex system, and it's not something that I have a, a handle on all of it myself. Uh, that's one of the frustrations, I think, as a physician over the years is that we have the complexities of, of billing and how we, um, you know, how we, um, how we pay for health care in America is such a complex thing, and certainly there's a huge need for it to be simplified. Uh, there's a lot of red tape that physicians have to jump through. But one of the questions that, that used to come up a good bit, say, with vaccinations uh, is, you know, uh, isn't there a conflict of interest with physicians with vaccinations because aren't they getting more money for these? And, you know, I can I can honestly say that's that's one of the fallacies with that, that we don't get paid more money for vaccination. So a physician uh, doesn't get any more uh, doesn't get paid that way. Uh, that's not the way vaccinations are, um, are, are billed. Certainly there is an administration fee. If that's a clinic or a hospital, they get that, but the physician themselves can't get any extra money for that. So that's sort of a, you know, a fallacy about, uh, uh, you know, about how we get paid for different things. And then the other one, uh, there's a confusion with the, the CARES Act money that uh, was uh, that Congress passed to try to help with the burden of care that, um, that the healthcare system has have, had to shoulder during COVID. Um, so, you know, if you think about all the patients with COVID and other, in order to protect the people who were taking care of them and protect the patients themselves, with an illness like this, there's, uh, I think everybody's familiar with the term PPE or personal protective equipment. So things like gowns, gloves, face shields, masks, um, filtration systems that have to be different in rooms. Uh, these are all things that we had before COVID for different illnesses like TB is a good example of that. Um, uh, but we, you know, we very quickly, because of the overwhelming number of patients in the hospital, these were expenses that uh, that hospitals weren't able to bear for themselves. And the margin on a lot of hospital systems is, is fairly low too. Um, but there's a lot of misconceptions, you know, that uh, if you have more patients in the hospital that, that have COVID, aren't physicians getting paid more? Uh, no, we don't. Um, there are, uh, you know, the federal government did have some mechanisms that uh, help support a lot of the care of those patients, but that is not going to physicians. In fact, um, you know, at our institution, uh, myself and uh, my, almost, I think, just about every physician in our institution took a pay cut um, because of the, the, you know, financial situation. So, didn't make more money off of COVID. COVID, uh, actually, we took a pay cut with COVID. So, um, I've said this a lot, I, you know, and my colleagues, uh, I feel pretty strongly about it. You know, we, we took an oath as a physician and as other healthcare professionals to take care of patients, regardless of, of the situation. So we're pretty dedicated to that. And uh, certainly uh, we want to do that. But there, you know, I, I understand there's a lot of misconceptions because of the complexities of it. But 
that's one that uh, no, we don't get extra money as physicians for taking care of COVID. We actually uh, um, had uh, taken most of us a, a cut with that, so a pay cut. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, an associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app.